All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here from New York City on the 17th day of April, 2018. I do want to remind you, I publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Subscribe to it by going to miningstocks.com. And uh, my friend Chen Lin publishes an excellent newsletter as well, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? Uh, Go to chenpicks.com to subscribe to Chen's letter. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel, and also to encourage you to send along your gripes, criticisms, uh, praises, whatever you want to say, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our... Sponsors for making this show economically viable and for keeping it on the air. Today, our sponsors are RN Resources, Bonterra Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold, New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire, and Novo Resources. Before I introduce today's show, let me just make a couple of comments about some of our sponsors who have had some uh, some fairly newsworthy things taking place this last week. Uh, Novo Resources uh, has traded very well. It was up some 50 cents on Monday. Very strong performance for Novo, despite the fact there's been no news to speak of. I su- suspect that there uh, there was quite a bit of short covering in the stock uh, in the recent past, and I suspect that a lot of short covering of the short sales uh, were taking place before some news expected to come out in another couple of weeks or so. In fact, uh, Dr. Quentin Henning is expected scheduled to be on my show on May 1st, and he uh, suggested to me some time ago that he expected to have some news, some very ex- uh, important news before uh, before that date. Northern Empire Resources uh, project that I visited recently is next to the Corvus Discovery, the Motherload deposit there in, uh, in Nevada, and they're having some very good news suggesting the extension of that deposit onto their property. A lot of good things happening at Northern Empire Resources. That's one I'm keeping a very close eye on. And Bonterra Resources. Now, this is a company that I think is going to knock the socks off of investors who aren't paying attention to it. And I say that because of the dramatic increase, both along strike and at depth, of their resource and very strong numbers that they've been reporting on an ongoing basis. But even more importantly than that, although perhaps not as uh, as exciting for investors, is the fact that they came out with some exceedingly good metallurgical news, some news on the metallurgical front from tests that they've been doing, getting up to 99.4% recovery, uh, recoveries of gold using gravity and standard 
uh, cyanide leaching technologies. So those are some of the things I'd really suggest you keep an eye on the companies that are sponsors of this show. They are sponsors not just because they are sending in money to become sponsors, but they are chosen. They are companies that I have in my newsletter and for the most part companies that I have put my own personal money into and companies that I believe in. So I like them and that's one of the main reasons they're uh, sponsors for the show. Uh, today's show, uh, we've got Frank Holmes, Amir Nanny, and Michael Oliver, the always dependable, reliable, and very, well, very thankful that Michael's joining us again today. I've titled today's show, Flying Toward Gold Mining Profits with Frank Holmes, because Frank Holmes, the CEO of uh, uh, Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Funds, has uh, established a fund, a, an ETF actually, called jets that's the symbol jets it is about it is it covers the airline industry uh that's one etf and then he's put together a second one uh with gold mining shares and that's the symbol is go au go in the symbol for gold we want to talk to frank about uh, what's unique about these funds and also just get his perspective on various things going on uh in the uh, in the global markets because his funds do cover uh, the global globally uh, markets around the world. So very uh, looking forward to talking to Frank. It's been a while since he's been on the show. Uh, certainly, uh, it, Frank is also very strong in the mining sector, and so that's uh, of course another reason that we want to talk to him about uh, about that sector as well. Uh, Michael Oliver's work has clearly shown that commodities are poised for a prolonged bull market, with some of them like gold and oil leading the way. However, the commodity that has lagged perhaps more than any other has been uranium. But now, with hostilities growing between the United States and Russia, that may be about to change because Russia, which had been suppressing the price of uranium in the United States since the fall of the Soviet Union, they've done so because they've sold uranium from disassembled nuclear weapons. Well, one wonders these days. Uh, in fact, I understand that, the, uh, that there is a movement in the parliament in Russia uh, to stop sales of uranium to the United States and elsewhere wouldn't be surprising. It's not shocking given all that's going on, but that could be the thing that sends the uranium prices uh, finally, after many years of slumber, to much higher levels. Of course, that is of great interest to Mirad Nani. As I noted, he is the president uranium of Uranium Energy. Uh, uranium Energy is a company that is ready to start producing uranium when it gets the right price. Right now, it doesn't make any sense. It's a very low-cost producer, but even as a low-cost producer, can't make money at current uranium prices. So it's simply sitting on the sidelines, but ready to pull the trigger as soon as the price of uranium rises. And so uh, that leads me to um, say hello to Michael Oliver because I think Michael has at least paid some attention to the uranium markets and uh, want to get his take on that. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Yeah, we, always, uh, good to have you, always good to have you with me, and it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's work. Well, Michael, I know that uranium isn't the market that you pay the most attention to, but you do keep track of it. It's not been a very exciting market. It's been pretty boring, actually, for quite a while. What are you seeing about the what? What are your uh, momentum charts telling you about well, uranium? I think it's an inevitability. It's going to go up. Okay, first off, commodities don't go to zero, and I think uranium has effectively gone to what you could call theoretical zero, much like grains did over the last three years. There was mm-hmm. not zero, but you know, as low as close as they're going to get, they just go to sleep. Okay, mm-hmm. uranium's there now. Above the uranium market, when we measure it via annual momentum, a long-term momentum. Um, 
And we use the uranium futures, which are highly illiquid. You cannot trade them, but at least they provide us with price reference points. They provide us with price history, and uh, therefore we can measure it, even if it is illiquid. Uh, but uranium is now twenty fifty, twenty dollars fifty. Okay, I've got two levels. We put out reports, oh, probably three or four times a year. We update, uh, but the numbers don't change because its annual momentum is based upon price's relationship to a three-year average. Mm-hmm. There's two levels above us, uh, and I won't get real specific. I've got uh, two different studies I've run that say about twenty-two fifty to twenty-three fifty, which is say two three bucks above the market. Wake mm-hmm. up, start to get long. Okay. That's still okay. so cheap, by the way. Okay. But the big number all year is any monthly close at 28 or higher blows a, out the top of an annual momentum base that goes back to 2011. It's a perfectly oh. horizontal base submerged below the three-year average. It happens that the three-year average is critical. And if you close at 28 or higher any time this year, you've broken through it. Now, that's a, that's a big rally from the current levels, but historically, that 20, even $28 is not a high price for uranium. Right. If you look back oh, at correct, history. yeah. So I'm arguing that I've got two trigger levels, and we update them. Uh, and I would, you know, this is a back burner market right now, but it, when it becomes a front burner, it can become a front burner fast because it doesn't have any public sentiment. It has no emotion attached to it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not highly watched. You know, it's not excessively invested in. If anything, it's the other way. So mm-hmm. it's, one, it, it's one of those areas in the four asset categories, in this case commodities, that uh, don't let it fool you. Just because it's dead and asleep and there's so much excitement going on elsewhere, often there's greater percentage moves out of markets like this when they wake right. up than you can acquire in three to four years in a bull market in stocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in other words, well, you, you, even if you just went to the three-year average on on, uh, uh, on uh, uranium, that's a huge percent move in itself. But well, you're seeing anyway. this now, aren't you, Michael? With your uh, agricultural commodities, I guess yes. are really starting to pick yes. up now, huh? Yep, I think the soybeans, corn, and wheat are, have broken out, and I think they're in the beginning phase of, of a uh, of a new bull market. And I think they'll beat other commodities this year, uh, even even gold on a percentage basis. Now I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. Beat oil. I think they'll beat copper. I think they'll beat. They're the best place to be in the commodity arena this year. Obviously, they weren't in 2016 and 17, but I think in 2018 they're going to be the front front runners. Just just sort of a catch up. You know, they yeah. were the dogs of the Dow, so to speak. And now they're now now going to be the front runners. All right. Uh, with regard to equities, you uh, sent a note to me this morning. You said it's messy. Uh, it's a messy stock market decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? You, 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 yeah, you're there, sort of re- it, referring back to 1977 to 1980, yeah, okay, something well, like in, that. In, there was a big transition in asset class, class preferences back in. The mid seventies through nineteen eighty, as we recall, that's the period when gold made a low after a right. move to two hundred dollars. It dropped back near one hundred and nineteen seventy six, right. and it went to eight fifty. Yeah, nineteen eighty. Well, during that period of time, commodities about a year later joined gold, and we had a huge commodity bull market. And com- stocks, which had had a big recovery from their two th- from their nineteen seventy four bear market low, they had a fifty percent drop. Yeah. to get to their 1974 low. They recovered along with Federal Reserve help, of course, uh, nicely into 1977. So they had a two, two, two-and-a-half-year rally, big rally. It wasn't like our 
nine-year rally, but it was big, nice recovery. But then they went dead, and they went that back down and really didn't go anywhere on the upside until 1982. But the top in 1977 is something to study if you're a price person, and we are also. We look at price as well as momentum. But that was an example of a protracted, excruciating bear market mm-hmm. that took forever to get its downside out of the way. It never really did collapse, but just you know, mm-hmm. persistently lost value. Um, and go back and look at other tops in the market. So, you know, 1929 is, is an exception. Most tops don't occur that way. They're more like 2008, which was, uh, if you recall, it was a lot of topping in seven, back and forth and back and forth, a lot of teasing. Yeah. Uh, and then you dropped in early 2008. But then what did you do? You came all the way back up to almost unchanged on the year, like, you know, it was May of that year. Okay, you're mm-hmm. almost unchanged after having a sharp drop. Well, here we're coming up on May, and, we're, you know, and we had a sharp drop in the first part of the year. We're having a rally into the spring. That happened in 2008 as well. It wasn't until late summer of 2008 in layered collapse manner that you finally really did give it up. And that wasn't mm-hmm. until October of 2008, the collapse that finally ended in March 2009. So protracted, laborious, redundant-type moves in stock markets to the downside are common. Expect them. Being Mm -hmm. a bear on the stock market is not going to be easy unless you're trading in and out every three days, which we don't do or advise. We could do it if we wanted to, but it's not our arena. Um, Mm -hmm. We're looking at the big picture, and the big picture says if you're in stocks, get out or balance your stock portfolio with long emerging markets and long commodities. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. particularly grains or grain right. equivalents, uh, things mm-hmm. that are benefited by grains. Uh, and so balance yourself out. Get out of the stock market. Uh, don't necessarily go short. There are better things to do in the world. Probably long grains is going to be better than short stocks. Okay. Uh, but it, it's going to be tough. Psychologically. All right, Michael, uh, we've, we're just really out of time here, but I have yeah. to always ask you about gold. What's it going to take to get above that magic 1350 <laughs> level? God, it's asleep. It's been above 50. Intra-week, intra uh, last two weeks, yeah. we've been up in the mid-60s. But it yeah. just will not close a month out above 1350, but it also will not collapse. Yeah. Uh, it is totally no volatility. It looks like the dollar, in effect. In a, I think maybe there is a relationship now between them, and I don't think that that's always true. Dollars asleep as well. Yeah. T-bonds are asleep as well. So there's a whole bunch of big markets out there that are literally asleep, where you can yeah. draw a line horizontally going back four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, and it's kissing your sister, you know. Yeah. It's, it's sideways. And yeah. uh, I suspect you'll have a wake up in a lot of these markets very soon. And I, I, All right. I suspect. Well, well certainly one that uh, some of us are hoping would finally wake up is uranium. And uh, we're going to be talking to Amir and Nanny right after the break. Michael, I want to thank you again for being with us again. Always a pleasure having you. Your, your ideas, your, your work, your laborious uh efforts that you pass along really pay off for your subscribers and if people are listening to Michael you might want to consider subscribing because that's the way you can really benefit he kind of gives us the big picture here but the way to really profit from Michael's work is to uh, sign up for his for his work thank you so much Michael for being you, with Jay. us and we'll look to do it again next week hopefully well folks don't go away we're going to be right back with Amir Adnani CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation as Michael was saying, uranium may be ready. It won't take too much to get it above some magic levels. It could send it to much higher levels. And we're going to talk to Amir right after the break, so don't go away.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Amira Nanny. He's the chairman, the chief executive officer, president, and a director of Uranium Energy Corporation. This is a sponsor of this show. It's a company that trades the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, UEC is a symbol. 157.5 million shares or thereabouts. Outstanding. Trading at $1.69 earlier when I looked at it today uh, in New York. Thanks for joining me again, uh, Amir. Hi, Jake. Great to connect with you, and uh, it's a very timely conversation. I don't think we could have planned this any better. Well, I think it could be, because there's lots of things going on geopolitically that uh, most certainly will you would, think, you would think would impact the market. So, as you mentioned, um, we were speaking earlier today that things are really heating up now between the United States and Russia regarding the conflict in Syria and uh, proposed sanctions, and how might this impact the global uranium market, uh, Amir? Jay, the Russian National Parliament response to U.S. sanctions that's likely to impact the uranium and titanium markets. So the draft law is calling to stop international cooperation in the nuclear and aircraft industries, not only with the U.S., but also and other foreign states who support U.S. sanctions against Russia and those who support Washington's position on Syria. So if this draft law is approved by the Kremlin, the U.S. utility industry is going to be in for a major supply shock as a result of their over-dependence on uranium coming from countries under the Russian sphere of influence. Uh, The U.S. generates about 20% of its electricity from nuclear power, 
and it imports about 40% of its uranium requirements from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. So the, on the flip side, on the titanium market, is also likely to be affected if the law comes to pass with a halt of titanium exports to the U.S., again, and other countries that are aligned with U.S. interests. So these sanctions are imposed in the uranium space. Um, uh, you know, UEC is extremely well prepared, Jay, and it's taken us 12 uh, years to be in this position where we have uh, our fully licensed Reno Creek project. Uh, it's an institute recovery project in Wyoming with a U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission a production license of 2 million pounds per year combined with the physical capacity of 2 million pounds per year at our Hobson Processing Facility in South Texas, positions UEC with baseline potential production profile of 4 million pounds of uranium per year. That's low-cost institute recovery. That would make us the leading number one uranium, U.S. uranium producer, um, and uh, it's exciting to be in that position. Well, it would seem to be, uh, given the fact that I think the United States has to import a huge amount of its uranium just to meet that uh, 20% of our electricity demand. So as a, as a related development to Russian sanctions, uh, Boeing company said on Friday it was aware of anti-American legislation proposal in Russia. Is that, is that what you were just talking about? Yeah, exactly. So the titanium market has already seen a significant upward momentum of prices across uh, the mineral sand space as a result of uh, stronger demand and systematic supply constraints. Many of the existing titanium ore bodies are reaching maturity and feedstock supplies are really continuing to experience lower grade and dwindling supply. So in addition to the possible supply shock of Russia halting titanium exports to the U.S. and other countries supporting U.S. positions, Rio Tinto is shutting down its Richards Bay mineral sand operation as the world's largest titanium mine It's because of labor disputes. That mine, uh, Jay, produces about 25% of global titanium feedstock. So you look at our company's Alto Piranha Titanium Project, and it's one of the yeah. highest grade and largest known undeveloped uh, ferro-titanium deposits in the world. So we're continuing to actively explore all options to increase the value of this asset, look to perhaps monetize a joint venture, its seller. Uh, and again, uh, interesting to see both uranium and titanium in the news like this. Is that, is that a really large project, Amir? Uh, you say it's one of the largest undeveloped projects, and is that something that would probably take a few years to get into, into production? And would you be looking for someone else to do it, a, a major company perhaps, uh, to monetize it? Yeah, as you and I have talked about this asset uh, back in January, and mm-hmm. uh, you recall this is something we acquired very opportunistically, leveraging yes. our uh, experience and know-how uh, and uh, in, in, the, in the country of Paraguay. And this is an asset that was very well developed by the very famous David Lowell uh, that was developing this privately mm-hmm. with CIC Resources, one of the most famous exploration geologists. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're not losing our interest on uranium at all. We're a 100% focused uranium company. But, boy, did we buy this at the right time. It was uh, late 2015. Titanium prices, base metal prices had uh, collapsed. Uh, we saw a good opportunity, bought it, and now we've seen prices recover uh, uh, very substantially in that sector. But all of a sudden, add these supply shocks of the Russian mm-hmm. sanction and halting uh, titanium production out of Russia and Rio Tinto's Richards Bay mine. And the same way we're, we're seeing a perfect storm develop in uranium, we're seeing a perfect storm develop in titanium as well. Well, so if if we start to have problems accessing foreign supplies of some of these critical metals, 
Uh, is the Trump administration doing anything to help? I mean, I there there. I think my my impression of the Trump of Trump's views before he became president was that he wanted to try to make it easier for companies to produce metals and raw materials in America. Is he doing anything now that might uh, that might help the uranium industry, the titanium industry, others? He's definitely he's definitely put uh, the right people in place, and he definitely has. Uh, the the right agenda here, uh, Jay, in terms of recognizing that key sectors that are vital to mm-hmm. America's energy infrastructure need to have their own raw material feedstock, their own you know to, to basically have that supply side. Look at what's happening with Section 232 uh, with aluminum and steel, and how they're trying to restore those industries. So, the Section 232 could be a massive catalyst here. This is the Section 232 petition. Uh, whereby uh, in, a, in a policy shift in U.S., domestic uranium producers would stand to really benefit from. So domestic uranium producers have filed this Section 232 petition, very similar to what has happened to steel and aluminum. It's proposing to reserve 25% of the U.S. nuclear market, so utility demand for uranium, for domestic uranium production. Uh, in response and in the very near term, we're going to see the Department of Commerce make a decision to open this investigation. From there, it will be another 200 days or so uh, to uh, submit their recommendations to the president. The president will then come down with a decision, very similar to what you saw in steel and aluminum in terms of how the mm-hmm. steps went forward. Uh, and you look at that um, uh, possibility, uh, Jay, it could be, again, a game changer where uh, you know, you're looking at 99 nuclear reactors operating in the U.S. They're almost entirely importing. All the uranium they need is from sources other than U.S. mined uranium. So if 25% of their demand is reserved for U.S. Uh, production, that could, again, be another major boost for the domestic uranium exploration mining industry. Jay, that's a 2018 event, most likely. I mean, we, we should probably see Department of Commerce move this forward and most likely see the president make a decision on it in 2018. How much, um, how, how much of the U.S. uranium imported uh, is imported from, uh, from, from Russia? I mean, uh, we no doubt get a lot of it from Canada, which probably isn't a problem for the lower 48. But what about Russia and how much do we get from sources that may be considered hostile to the United States? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure necessarily if, let's say, uh, hostile would, would be the, the word I would use, but I would say that uh, the, the way we would, I would characterize it is that um, Russia and countries that are probably more closely aligned with Russia or under mm-hmm. Russian sphere of influence make up 40% of uranium supplies coming into the U.S. So Russia, oh, okay. Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan are, are almost half of the uh, supply requirements of the U.S. So, again, you're talking big numbers here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, let's not forget, I mean, even some of the mines in Kazakhstan are partly owned by Russians. So, they're so you know, again, the influence runs deep in those countries. Uh, and, uh, of course, again, there's uh, historical ties and uh, physical proximity that uh, aligns those nations uh, uh, more closely than, um, you know, the U.S. customers on, on this side of the uh, the ocean. Right. Uh, Amir, with just a few minutes left here yet, what did your company achieve in the last 12 months? And, and uh, what are some of the main catalysts that we might look forward to over the next six months, aside from the uranium price, which if it breaks out, I, I think uh, Michael Oliver was suggesting a $2 rise in the uranium price could really start to get things cooking. But what are some of the 
Well, yeah. what what has your company achieved in the last twelve months, and what might we be looking forward to as as drivers for your share price in the next six months? Yeah, both both in the last uh, twelve months and in the next six months, uh, what we're doing is in uh, the context of the framework of our corporate strategy. So, remaining a hundred percent unhedged for maximum exposure to a turnaround in the uranium prices. Second, making accretive acquisitions near the bottom of the cycle here and growing and de-risking our very low-cost institute recovery portfolio in Texas, Wyoming, and in Paraguay. There's, of course, mm-hmm. now a new objective on the horizon to maximize the value of our uh, Altapurana titanium project, uh, which will be, again, a, a real boost to uh, uh, UEC shareholders, especially now with the positive turnarounds there. So when you look at what we've uh, been up to, and we'll continue doing more of this, Jay, for example, over the last 12 months, we've made number of key acquisitions. We acquired the fully permitted Reno Creek project in Wyoming's mm-hmm. Powder River Basin. This year, we're going to expand on that acquisition uh, with uh, other areas that we're picking up and some permitted ma- amendments that we're making. We've been drilling our Burke Hollow project in South Texas, increasing our resources there. Uh, at a time of so much geopolitical tension, I think it's nice for our shareholders and for the market to see that we're talking about expanding and developing projects and being production ready in places like Texas and Wyoming. Uh, this is, uh, I think, music to a lot of people's ears, again, at a time of uh, so much geopolitical um, uh, uncertainty. Uh, and again, having the infrastructure advantage, having the hops and processing plants, which is built sure. and ready to go, uh, and being in a position where... Uh, we can turn on production quickly, and we can grab market share quickly. Uh, and that's, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It's taken uh, over 12 years to get to the position that uh, UEC is in right now. Yeah. Well, you certainly have assembled a very strong management team there, too, Amir, and that's something we don't have time to talk about, but we've talked about it in the past, a very strong management team. Uh, so what, in your opinion, what's kept the uranium market so boring in the last number of years? And uh, and what is your, just your general, maybe in summarizing, what is your general view of the uranium market now? Jerry, I think the last uh, six years, um, and especially after what happened in Japan with Fukushima, the uranium yeah. market has definitely been in an oversupplied situ- uh, sort of scenario. There's, there's been too much supply in the market. Japanese reactors were offline. And even the Kazakhs uh, and, uh, continue to produce more uranium where, frankly, they should have been cutting production. Mm-hmm. That's where the story has really turned fundamentally from a supply-demand point of view over the last 12 months. Over the last 12 months, one of the key developments, which isn't geopolitical at all, is major supply cuts, uh, mine production that has been uh, cut down and reduced by the producers like Kazatomprom, that basically the state-owned company of Kazakhstan, and Cameco. These, these are the two mm-hmm. big producers who are state-owned, or uh, I mean, in the case of Kazakhstan and Cameco, They've, they've, really, they've really gained supply discipline. This is fundamentally key to the turnaround of the, of the story. Demand, on the other hand, is being led by this growing international need for zero-emission baseload electricity. Mm-hmm. So then you add on top of that, so you've got this fundamental supply-demand side of the equation that's shifting favorably with demand picking up and supply-side cuts really kind of helping uh, tighten the market up. We're going to see a supply deficit this year for the first time in seven years. That's very positive for price. And Jay, the sheer fact that most uranium mines in the world can't make money at $20 per pound. And any long-term contracts from 
years ago that were giving them a better price than $20 are expiring or rolling over this year. So you have this perfect storm developing. Uh, the supply-demand side of the equation is turning into a supply deficit. Long-term contracts are expiring. Uh, most of the production curve is underwater at $20 uranium. That is never a sustainable picture for any commodity when that happens. And then add on top of that geopolitical tension, add on top of that the, the pending uh, Russian sanctions, the pending U.S., uh, 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 the Trump administration and Section 232 petition we talked about, Mm-hmm. And you really see a perfect storm developing here. That's why I think this is such a timely interview, what I said at the, at the outset of our conversation. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that. But one really quick uh, answer, if I could get an answer from you. What uranium price you need to see, Amir, to turn, uh, to turn your production back on? Jay, we've been looking and talking about $40 uranium to see and turn our Palangana production back on. We have our Burke Hollow project that we would develop after that, and we have our Reno Creek project in Wyoming. Again, the baseline to get to uh, the production profile of 4 million pounds per year. So, again, it, it may seem like a long way to go, but remember, most mines don't make money at 20 or $30 per pound. This price is going to spike up, I think, very quickly. It's going to have a slingshot effect because, remember, the uranium price is a very thinly traded market. Uranium prices can move very quickly, uh, and um, uh, and that's, uh, that's something that uh, people have to remember from back in 2006, 2007, how quickly the price went from $20 per pound to $140 per pound. You were there. Right. We were on that ride together. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, we can't lose sight of that. Absolutely. Well, that's certainly uh, what Michael Oliver was suggesting as well, the slingshot approach or the slingshot uh, action there that could take place once we get through. His key number is 28 through there, and we're off to the races. Thank you so much, Amir, for being with us. Great to have you. It's a great story now. I think the timing is very good, so thanks very much. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away. Uh, We're going to be back with uh, Frank Holmes of U.S. Global, and he's got some interesting things to tell us about a couple of ETFs, in particular GoAU, the, the gold mining share ETF, which I find a fascinating story. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Frank Holmes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Frank Holmes. And Frank is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Funds. It specializes in natural resources and emerging market investing. Uh, we've had Frank on the show several times in the past, and it's really good to welcome him again. Thanks for joining me again, Frank. It's great to be with you. So um, I want to ask you primarily, I think you'd find your uh, new ETF, and you have two ETFs. One is uh, has to do with the airline industry, and that's JETS. It trades in the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol JETS, $31.25, I think, when I looked at it earlier today. But the one that I'm mostly interested in, given my interest in the mining sector and the precious metals mining sector, uh, is Go AU, Go the symbol, uh, Go Gold, essentially, and uh, New York Stock Exchange traded 1290 is where I saw it trading earlier in the day. Talk to us about this, Frank. This is a precious metals ETF, not the first one. You're not out there by yourself. JDXJ is there, JDX. Uh, those are a couple of others. Uh, how does your fund differ from some of the others that are out there now? Well, I think the big one factor is, is the... Uh the quant approach, and, and, and what we did is, is that we have spent about 8,000 hours in behind this particular product, and we found that even though our gold uh, smart uh, gold fund managers, Ralph Aldis, uh, Top Gun, and myself, and we just weren't getting fund flows, Jay, uh, even though we were performing the GDX and GDXJ, and in 2017, uh, the GDX, or from 16 to 17, that June to June, uh, GDXJ brought in $5 billion of new assets. And hardly anything went to the Tocquevilles or ourselves and yeah. other active gold fund managers. And, and so we became really keen on trying to fine-tune our own model and say, well, let's come up with a smart beta, a quant approach to picking these gold stocks. And, um, and so we learned a lot from our JETS ETF, which was a, a smart beta, a quant approach to outperforming the New York Stock Exchange Global Airline Index. And and so based on those rigorous hours of back testing, uh, we were able to come up with a product that did it. And the gold one, when we created this product, we back tested it, um, and we found that it was outperforming the GDXJ uh, 92% of the time in rolling 12-month periods going back a decade. Now, you can't really go to market that index uh, because past performance rightfully so not a guarantee of future results, but sure. there was something happening here. And, and so we were applying our explicit knowledge and our tacit knowledge of actually being good gold stock pickers uh, and then how would we create this system. And one of the things we found was royalty companies. So this mm-hmm. unique product has 30% royalty companies, the three big amigos, uh, Franco Nevada, uh, uh, Wheat and Precious, and uh, Royal Gold. And each year these stocks have done, they outperform each other on different basis, but overall they have much higher revenue per employee. They have uh, much more stable price to book value. We found that the quant funds that come in and buy these gold stocks don't care about NAVs being cheaper from one to the other. They're much more consumed with book value growth and is a book value getting knocked down all the time 
And so the royalty companies, when they do a financing, it's always agreed up. So their book value is rising. Uh, and they don't seem to take these big hits and write-downs as the mining companies did in 2012 and 13. Uh, and so what we also looked at is the GDXJ's constituents, the companies that go into the GDXJ. There was over 65 of them. And, and there was really something tragic, and that was there was 40% dilution a year. That is, these companies mm. were issuing their shares from uh, takeovers that didn't work out. And, uh, and so what does that mean? Well, it means that either the price of gold goes up 40% a year, or mm-hmm. the production rises 40% a year, or the reserves rise at 40% a year, and th- all three were, was just not happening. So you had a huge value destruction in that GDXJ, uh, on a per share basis. And so what we focused on was 28 stocks that were really caught up with who were the best at value per share, not mergers A and B and they have more revenue and bigger projects. No, no. Who has given you the best each quarter? And we selectively did some back testing and, and mentioned earlier, we went through like 60 different factors went back over a decade and say, just give me the 10 best stocks of the 88 global gold producers based on, let's say, revenue per share. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's look at cash flow per share growth and only pick the best 10 each quarter. And so what we found was that they outperformed those, those factors on 10 names. But to have a mutual fund or to have an ETF, you have to have at least 20 names. Sure. And so you need a concentrated portfolio. And because of that, we refined it to the key five factors, up cycles, down cycles, short cycles, long cycles. Uh, and, and this is how we were able to create a product that would outperform the GDXJ 92% of the time. 92% of the time. So the GDXJ, though, is, is comprised of a lot of juniors. I guess that's the J part of it, right? There's a, the, there's yep. a GDX, right? The GDX, would that be closer to, to what you do, perhaps? You no, because we'll go down I, to, we'll, our, our model will go down to two hundred million dollar market caps. Uh huh. Down. So, so that's uh, a, that's the smallest, the two hundred million. Yes, and the same thing with the GDXJ. It goes down okay. to that level. So, so what we did is we created tiers. But what happened, Jay, in that data mining and analysis is that there weren't that many companies that really had. Um, shown growth in, the, in their reserves per share, production per share, or cash flow per share on a consistent mm-hmm. basis. And, uh, and so those, that did, uh, those three factors in particular, um, uh, they outperformed. And so mm-hmm. we created this sort of basket and we focused on the, the majority of the names are listed in, in Toronto or New York. Um, and then when we went to Australian, specific Australian stocks, uh, we had a smaller uh, percentage um, that would be invest in those. So it would be capped at 2% could be in any one name. And what that did was it lowered the uh, currency volatility. And we learned that from Jets, Jay. Mm-hmm. When we created Jets, it's 80% U.S. stocks, but 70% of the names are foreign. And, and most of those 24 names are one percenters. So you mm-hmm. never get destroyed by one country's currency. Uh, uh-huh. And and so for the past three years, the the Jets has done exactly what it's said it would do, uh, and so hopefully the go go gold will do that. And I just think for the same expense ratio, basically and cost, you have a far superior uh, fund. And if you look at the index, uh, it's it's doubled over the ten years versus the GDXJ and GDX are both down between forty and fifty percent. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, do you do you have any uh, any any uh, any countries that are off limits for your fund? When or do you, you just you stick c- to the metrics that you mentioned, the sixty no, factors? I, 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 that's a great question, Jay. Uh, because there are certain countries we just won't go into, and it's mostly mostly because of li- of liquidity or some of those countries like Taiwan, um, uh, South Korea. It, you, you, they won't allow you to do uh, the, the, the trading mechanism is not clean, and so you can get. Um, the, on paper, it looks like it's easy to do a trade, but actually executing on those trades is not. And Turkey was another one. Uh, and when we back those names out, they really didn't uh, have a significant improvement in the overall alpha. Uh, mm-hmm. What was more important was um, having 30% in the royalty companies and then the other tiered. So it's big cap, mid cap, and small cap, and foreign cap. What uh, the, the gold shares in general just haven't really performed as well in the recent past, anyway, relative to gold, the bullion. Why do you think gold shares are lagging behind, uh, you know, the underlying commodity? I, I think a lot had to do with the um, GDXJ getting all the assets uh, in 2016 to 17. That time period where uh-huh. uh, from June to June. And then they blew out in a matter of what, you know, took a year to get $5 billion in, $3 billion went out within weeks. And that really mm-hmm. damaged the psychology. I heard about this when I flew to Australia. I heard about it in Africa and England, um, that it, it had this sort of global ramifications uh, of the markets. Now, you know, the Van Eck people, they're great people, but the product itself went to show. And if you really want to play, you know, boogeyman stuff, what happens with happens the S&P 500? You know, the... Um, when all of a sudden you have this huge concentration in only these names, yeah. and, uh, and and all of a sudden uh, they own more than ten percent of uh, twenty <laughs> names. Yeah. You know what 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 happens then if all of a sudden they say, well, no, we have to get rid of some of these names, um, yeah. and and what devastation will that cause? Because yeah. I think as a case study Harvard style, the GDXJ is a classic of of getting all the assets that would normally get spread amongst 10 active gold fund managers. Mm-hmm. You know, as I look at some of the names, uh, the companies in your, in your gold ETF, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, do you, some of these companies have real growth prospects as well? I mean, I, they're, they're household names for the most part. Uh, and we know that the big companies are having a real tough time replacing their resources, although as I look over your list, it seems to me I don't see... Oh, I don't know. Newmont and some of the bigger gold corp is there, but not in a big amount. Kinross. Uh, do, you, do a lot of your names have growth prospects in them built into their you know exploration development stories? Right. That's another. That's another um, uh, excellent observation. Yeah. One of the things in the quant world uh, is is it's sort of bifurcated, and they're all the laws of physics. So the laws of physics are either inertia, momentum, uh, and growth or they are value, uh, mean reversion. Uh, uh, things will always revert back up to the mean. And uh-huh. so this portfolio is half of it's looking for growth momentum, stocks that have a stronger growth momentum, and the other half is looking at what are the cheapest stocks that have the biggest probability of a bounce. So each quarter it rebalances those names and looks for who's the cheapest on a set of five key metrics. Uh-huh. And, um, and so... 
I think you know Oceana Gold, which is growing in in uh, the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's more of that growthy name. Um, I think that uh, some of the other names just become because of currency volatility. I think Semifor also has a very strong growth, mm-hmm. um, and I think that SSR is just one of those great value propositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Guyana Gold, um, Gold Corp. You know, Gold Corp doesn't really have the growth metrics, but it, it, it has seemed to become undervalued on a relative basis. Uh-huh. Um, but it was out of there for a while. It just recently went back in. Mm-hmm. And um, and Ken Ross has just recently gone back in. Um, who goes in and out is Harmony. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, and so I would say when you take a look at uh, the four names, you can see uh, Evolution, Santa Barbara, uh, they're really growthy names. Some of the fastest growth in gold, growthy gold stock names were in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's just very evident, um, and they were also very. They were much more successful at delivering that production. But what you notice about those names are only two percent, and that's part yeah. of the whole idea, the concept of dealing with this currency volatility. Mm-hmm. China is, uh, you know, the, the Chinese government has been encouraging people, as you know very well, to, to buy gold, to invest in gold, and the Chinese government has built up their gold reserves to a great extent. Uh, what do you think, uh, and China, as I understand, is the largest gold producer. Are there any Chinese names? Yes, there is. Uh, the one Chinese name, uh, direct play, is uh, uh, Hengxing uh, Gold Corporation. Oh yeah, I see it. Uh huh. Yes. Uh huh. Okay, but I mean, it's not the easiest place, probably for uh, for for people outside of China to invest in, in China. Correct. Um, yeah. it, so it's a it's a Hong Kong company. Yeah. What are your What are your thoughts about um, what's going on now with the uh, with the Shanghai Petroleum Exchange uh, being denominated in yuan? Any thoughts about that and, and what significance it might have on world markets, on the currency markets? Well, I think the whole part is that the big movement is to get outside of just uh, people trading in U.S. dollars for trade because mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. has to go through New York. And, yeah. um, and what we saw from the Saudi Arabia is that if, if China wants to buy the oil, well, we don't want to take renminbi unless it's backed by gold. Yeah. Yeah. They'll take dollars. They don't have to be backed by gold, but they'll ta- they just don't trust the currency yet. So I think any country that really wants to uh, have the, the power of the U.S. dollar from a liquidity point of view is going to have to give support, like uh, the demands for, for gold-backed. And that's what supposedly we're waiting here for the Chinese-backed uh, bond issue with gold. Mm-hmm. Should be very bullish for gold, I would guess. I think it's very bullish, and I'm very bullish on gold uh, uh, for, for several reasons. You know, one is uh, um, everyone likes to talk about the fear trade, but historically, Jay, this time of the year, after Chinese New Year, gold trades down until the summer uh, yeah. when you have the, uh, the beginning of Ramadan and we get the, the first uh, sort of religious uh, uh, spiritual move in gold, and then we have uh, uh, Indian uh, wedding seasons and New Year and uh, mm-hmm. Christmas and then Chinese New Year. Um, that usually starts between May, June, bottoming, and uh, and runs to um, January, February. Uh, and this year we're having a rising gold market. So a lot of this has to do with a weak dollar, and I think that um, uh, we're going to continue to have a policy. I think that uh, President Trump, whatever he's been able to do, is uh, 
uh, even with rising interest rates, it's so surprising that the dollar's not rising relative mm-hmm. to the euro and other countries' currencies. And what is that doing? Well, Boeing was up almost 90% last year, best-performing Dow stock, because exports are exploding. Uh, yeah. Global PMI start going. So uh, a weaker U.S. dollar is actually not just beneficial to our export market. It's beneficial to the world. It seems mm-hmm. to be a catalyst for this sort of global growth, and it's good for the price of gold. Uh, so I think that that's one factor. I'm a big believer that we're in the peak zone for gold. And there's no new technological breakthrough. We had peak oil until the frackers came along and had this substantial, massive technological improvement in fracking. And that made a big game changer that uh, the U.S. became the second biggest oil producer um, outside of uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wrote a piece on that, that um, uh, the success of Texas, where I compared Texas to Russia, you'll get a good chuckle over investor alert, um, what the differences are. But I, I, I think that uh, we're, we're going to see the dollar to maintain this weakness, even with rising interest rates on a relative basis. Uh, I think that uh, we are also going to see that rising GDP per capita in China and India uh, which has been still maintaining itself. The correlation to the love trade is extremely high. 60% of all gold consumption is for love uh, in China and India and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as that uh, GDP per capita is rising, uh, we're seeing in tourism. You see in New York City now, Chinese dominate tourists, uh, visitors, yeah. uh, especially in front of the New York Stock Exchange, the epicenter of financial capitalism. They all want to do a selfie. Uh, the tourists, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you, you see between San Antonio and Austin, Texas, the big outlet malls, uh, discount outlet malls, they used to be in Spanish and uh, English visa uh, ads everywhere, uh-huh. it's now Chinese, it's Interesting. Chinese for, yeah. for the rise of the middle class, and so this is the year of the dog, and there'll be lots of little golden doggies bought for anyone that has a zodiac year born in the year of the dog. As a Interesting. Gift. Yeah, interesting. I noticed in looking at your website, I think you had exactly that. You have some some article, perhaps on uh, on profiting from the China from the rising Chinese uh, middle class, right? Correct. And it yeah. gets lost, you know, in 1.4 billion people, but they have now more uh, middle class than Americans. So when you have the middle class person making 100 grand a year, and you have 110 million people in China making uh, 100 grand a year, the first thing they do is tourism. So America is always the dominant tourist country in the world, um, and we have 94 uh, people making more than 100 grand middle class, as they call it. Uh, yep. So I, I, I think that this is very bullish for, for gold demand. Uh, yeah. It's uh, Also, you have, uh, I think, an article of what's going on with blockchain and, and digital currencies. Frank, do you see that? How, how does that play into the gold markets, if at all? Well, the big thing right now is, is, is the G20 cartel. Uh, the mm-hmm. finance ministers, you know, the China and the U.S. may be sword rattling and geopolitics and et cetera, but the G20 finance ministers folk, folk, function like they're OPEC, and they're all about global taxation and regulation. Uh, and so you're seeing that they're all, I believe, a concern for Bitcoin and the growth of cryptocurrencies. Um, there's a big paper coming out in mid-July, um, and as soon as we started seeing uh, the SEC, Congress, like all of a sudden we saw the coins start to unravel in January, February, March, uh, and the SEC has been going after um, ICOs. And I think that the Bitcoin is really not 
not in competition with the gold investor. I think if anything, in my research is that the gold investor, a lot of the early adopters like like Eric Sprott into the Bitcoin uh, uh, growth, um, they bought it. They didn't sell their gold to buy it. They just diversified and put one percent mm-hmm. of their assets into it. But I really big believer that the the regulatory world, you know, with good intentions, has basically chased away any speculative money in for exploration or innovation in the stock market. Uh, and they basically shut that down. That speculation is only at the casinos, lottery tickets. Uh, they go and play bingo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's where you can, that's where you can go and speculate. But that's like prohibition. It never stopped people from drinking. And yeah. people want to speculate. And the millennials want to speculate. And it takes them three days to five days to open a brokerage account to go speculate in a junior mining stock. And it takes yeah. them five minutes to open an account at Coinbase. And all of a sudden, they're speculating on a new ICO. And the math demonstrates that. Over $5 billion went to 1,000 new coins last year. So a lot of this speculative money for exploration, mining, and, and technology, etc., has now gone into these ICOs. Um, what's important is that a lot of these ICOs or became cheap capital for, for promoters, and uh, there's been scams there. So the regulators are going after the scammers. I think that that's important to, to clean that up. But I do believe that um, there's something happening in, in those capital markets, and I think that a lot of the G20 countries uh, are trying to slow down the growth and success of the crypto world because they're coming with their own coins. Um, yeah. India wants their own coin. Russia has their own coin. Right. Uh, and I and and so it's that's an important factor to to consider. Um, yeah. But blockchain is huge. Uh, you're seeing that blockchain will change the paradigm of stock trading. Um, that there'll be uh, it basically would have really uh, changed the paradigm of, of uh, Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers going bankrupt uh, with all those derivatives that they were on blockchain. They would have settled on time. Um, and they would have settled every 10 minutes, you know. That, okay, Frank, so I, that, I just realized, uh, sorry, we're, I just realized we're out of time. I hadn't been keeping my eye on the uh, uh, on my engineer's uh, notes to me, but uh, I think we're going to have to let it go at that, unfortunately. Happy Thank investing. You. Thank you so happy much, Frank, for being with friend. us, folks. It's usfunds.com. Go there and, and uh, catch up on Frank's work. It's, it's excellent, usfunds.com. Well, thanks very much. Go gold. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, William Engdahl will be with me. And uh, we're also the CEO of Klondike Gold and also uh, hopefully Michael Oliver. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Montero Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Oren Resources is a technically driven, capital-efficient exploration company focused on delivering shareholder value through accretive project acquisition and discovery. 
the company's management team has a record of success in the discovery, advancement, and monetization of exploration assets. Oren's focus is on advancing its seven premier gold exploration projects located in Canada and Peru. Oren's shares trade on the TSX in Canada and the NYSE American in the U.S. under the stock symbol AUG. For more information, please visit orinresources.com.